All right, welcome to The Scramble. <clears throat> We're not beginning today with a comic intro because our first two to- topics here are pretty serious. Uh, we're going to begin with a conversation about Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter, Oliver Sacks, uh, and, and other people who kind of um, are, are helping us with frank and it's sometimes almost audacious talk. Uh, talk about death. Uh, we're going to tell you about a place where you could even go, kind of pop-up place where you could even go and talk about death if you come from the kind of background that I'm from where people actually just don't talk about death. Anyway, uh, bef- after that, we're going to tell, talk a little bit about um, how you might process the news from Friday's uh, train attack in France, where, uh, in fact, a group of five people, three of them were American, young American travelers, two of whom were American servicemen, turned the tables on uh, an apparent um, active shooter terrorist uh, on a train in France uh, and subdued him. And it's something that a lot of people think about, like, should I, if I were ever in that situation, should I do that? Uh, what's the state of the thinking about that? Um, the thinking about, about that, by the way, is by no means unanimous, but there are some elements of common wisdom. Anyway, we'll go over that with a uh, guest with considerable expertise. And then at the end, because, okay, these are both kind of grim things, we're going to uh, switch to the world of science fiction, where there's kind of an interesting controversy uh, involving the Hugo Awards, which are the Oscars of science fiction. So that'll be later. And that's with our friend Arthur Chu, the many, many time uh, Jeopardy champion and freelance writer. All right. So uh, we're going to begin with uh, the subject of death and not so much death, but how we talk about death or whether we can talk about death. Uh, And so back in February, I think it was Oliver Sacks, the renowned neurologist, um, announced in The New York Times that that he had a terminal uh, illness. Uh, and that um, there were, although there were treatments, that ultimately he was resolved to the fact that he was going to die from this. Um, and he wrote very frankly and in that sort of very elegant way that Oliver Sacks has of expressing himself about this. Uh, and since then, he's written other pieces about sort of what it's like to be dying and what he's thinking about while he's dying, what's important to him while he's dying. Um, and on the heels of that, uh, last week, uh, Jimmy Carter called a press conference uh, at the Carter Center, and here's what we heard there. I just thought I had a few weeks left, but I was um, surprisingly at ease. You know, I, I've had a, great, a wonderful life. I've had thousands of friends, and and uh, I've had an exciting and adventurous and gratifying existence. So I was surprisingly at ease, much more so than my wife was. <laughs> But um, but now I feel, you know, it's in the hands of, of God whom I worship, and uh, I'll be prepared for anything that comes. Now, oddly enough, both Oliver Sacks and Jimmy Carter uh, suffer from melanoma, and melanoma kind of in places where you wouldn't expect to find it, too. Uh, uh, Sacks has started as an ocular melanoma, and Jimmy Carter's uh, was on his brain. Um, so anyway, um, but they're both, uh, what they really share is kind of an ability to talk about this in a way that puts us at ease more than scares us. And uh, they really do kind of have the potential. And I think they both really want to be frank and honest and transparent and analytical about this as much as is possible in a society that's 
not super comfortable with this. And that got us thinking, well, what else could you do, really, uh, to get super comfortable with this? Uh, we're talking now to Lizzie Miles. She's an end-of-life advocate. I mean, she's not an advocate for the end of life, but uh, and a hospice social worker. She was the first person to bring the concept of the death cafe uh, to the United States. Now, death cafe sounds like you know the worst possible alternative to Starbucks, uh, but that's not what it is. It's a place where people really can get together and share in the way that we're talking about. But Lizzie Miles, uh, I'm stealing your lines. You could do a much better job of explaining what a death cafe is and, and, and how someone might avail themselves of it. Sure, sure. Well, a death cafe, pretty simply, is just a pop-up event where people get together to talk about death and dying and whatever they want to related to that and have tea and cake. And it, really, yeah, that's simple. And and so, uh, first of all, I have to ask, what's the significance of the tea and cake? Well, the Death Cafe concept came from England, and they had tea and cake there. And when I brought it to the U.S., I think it just made it sound a little bit more palatable and more inviting than just, hey, let's all talk about death. Right. So, so it's a spoonful of cake that makes the death go down. Um, yeah. So. Nice. Um, so, so this kind of works uh, almost as a pop-up concept, right? Uh, you can go on deathcafe.com, as I did today, and kind of find out where such things are going to happen. And uh, is, is that the way it works? Yeah, that's true. You can, you can look up to find out the next closest death cafe near you, or you can learn about how to host one. There's really uh, not a lot of rules or restrictions about hosting we just want hosts to follow the guidelines of what a death cafe is mm. so if you don't have one in your area or even if you do but you want to host one um anyone can host a death cafe which is really awesome why yeah well um setting aside whether it's awesome for a second why is it necessary why would if you were to explain why such a thing is necessary uh, why you need a place where somebody can go outside their home outside their outside their family outside their immediate circle of friends why do we need a death cafe i i think we need it because the people that want to talk about things that are on their minds related to death and dying are not necessarily surrounded by other people who want to have those same conversations. So um, it, it offers up a, a place where people can go to talk to others who are interested in having the conversation because those of us who work in the industry know that our friends and family don't really want to hear about our job um, and what we do and what we think about. So... Um, you know, it, it puts people together who do want to talk about it. Yeah, I think I don't know whether it's unique to our society or not, but we don't like to talk about this. Last week, I interviewed the cartoonist Roz Chast, who has a uh, a book out about the uh, the end of life uh, of her of both of her parents. Uh, and it's called Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, which pretty well sums up the attitude of a lot of people. I I certainly sums up the attitude of both of my parents when they were dying. I don't think we ever mentioned the word death while my parents were dying of pretty protracted illnesses. And I, I don't do you have a theory about what why is that? Why can't we do it? Well, I think there's a fear that if you talk about it, it'll make it happen. Or even the way you introduced the show, you said that 
death is uncomfortable, and it's in, I can't remember the exact words you used, but you kind of prefaced that it's going to be a morose conversation. It doesn't necessarily have to be, um, but people don't know that. My personal experience is, you know, I have had double-digit numbers of family members die, and the more death that you experience, um, the more you, you kind of realize that, you know, it's going to happen whether you want it to or not. And, you know, you probably have more of a desire to process things. Um, you know, I've had a chance to um, experience this a little bit recently. Um, we did a show with a, a pastor named Nancy Butler, uh, who has ALS. She came in and we spent an hour talking about it. And part as part of getting ready for the show and the aftermath of the show, I basically just kept going to her church. And she's still tending to her flock uh, while she has ALS. She's in a, a wheelchair. Uh, and uh, And obviously ALS has... No favorable outcome. It is a universally fatal disease. Um, and she's been very frank about it. And very, it's been very interesting. to. I mean, she's talking about it in a, way that, in a way that I've never been comfortable talking about it. So this Sunday, and Kion, I think we will use that first clip. Um, this Sunday, I asked her a, a little bit about how she feels watching Jimmy Carter's story unfold. Um, here's Nancy Butler. You used Jimmy Carter as a hero story. Explain what did you say about him when you when you made him into a hero story? I remember my kids wrote their college essays. They say show don't tell. Um, Jimmy Carter is somebody who shows doesn't tell. Like even in his speech, it wasn't like tons of like turn to Jesus. You know, I'm dying. Whatever. You know, he shows what God is like. He shows what Jesus is like by the way he lives his life. So I just think from a young age, he has had good spiritual habits and has been an obedient, good, faithful servant. And uh, that's why he's a hero to me. You were talking today in the service about how even the smile that he had uh, when he was announcing all this about himself uh, was remarkable. Say that again. Well, to be honest with you, I didn't watch the tape until... I heard you wanted to talk to me about it. I was like, oops, I better go watch it. So I watched it. The whole, I, I went to the Carter Center site and watched the whole thing. And I was blown away because it wasn't a fake smile, like pasting it on to look good for the camera. I, I don't know if anybody else felt it, but I just felt from like deep from his soul. There was just a peace. There was a joy. There was a satisfaction with what he'd done with his life. Um, and obviously, leaving your loved ones is hard, but... Um, other than that, I sent somebody who felt um, very at peace with God and himself. And this is something that you talk a lot about in the services. Uh, last week, you kind of walked us all through kind of how you expected your own death to go. And I know I've talked to you enough to know that you do that pretty matter-of-factly. And, yeah. and this time you were doing it to illustrate a point about the notion of consulting with God right. before you make all your plans. <laughs> but I, I think I was even looking around the service thinking, I wonder how many people in this congregation have heard you talk so directly about that. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I speak directly about it because it's, you know, it's coming. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I guess, I mean, me, it's not my personality. I'm just an open person, so I'm going to say what I think anyway. And I'm thinking about my death. I mean, I have to, I do have two things. I make a decision whether to go to the ventilator or not. And if I don't, I will die next year. So um, I want to land the plane in a beautiful fashion if I can. So I do, I have to spend a lot of time thinking about how to do that. And I bet I could tell Jimmy Carter's doing the same thing. Your River from Family Church, his is the Carter Center. Right. I mean, that's really why I'm asking you about this. I feel like for the most part, we 
as a society kind of, I mean, I know that I do. I just hold thoughts of death at bay. Like, I don't yeah. want to think about it. I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, Mike Wallace one time asked Woody Allen if he wanted to live on in the memories of his fans. And Woody Allen said, no, I want to live on in my apartment. Yeah. And I'm kind of like that. But yeah. I, I feel now like with Oliver Sacks has been so yeah. frank and open about yeah. it. And now yeah. Jimmy Carter that maybe yeah. we, we are. And I feel like I'm getting from you some examples about how to be more honest, more and less eager to push it off and push yeah. it away. Yeah. Well, I think it's just human nature. Like, just think about life, not death. When we have a friend's funeral, when we ourselves are facing death, that's when we talk about it. So I think it's somewhat just human nature. I mean, I think we're supposed to live life well. Mm. But we are supposed to be ready to die. And I think if Jimmy Carter did well, he's ready to die. I mean, not like die-die, but, you know, he's at peace with his life. So I think we should live our lives in a way that whenever the end comes, we don't have regrets. But I think it's natural to talk about it all the time. I mean, you know, <laughs> it comes up when you're dying. It comes up when you go to a funeral. And that's the time to be direct about it, I suppose. Lizzie Miles, uh, listening to that uh, and, and being somebody who tries to facilitate opportunities anyway for people to, to talk about death if, in fact, they need to, they want to, they're ready to push pack, past the huge wall of denial that people like me tend to erect around the subject. Um, does, do you think it matters that, that Oliver Sacks and Jimmy Carter and people like that are, are sort of leading us into a conversation that it's a little bit different from what I can remember at any other point in my life? I, I think they are. They're they're setting along with your minister. They're setting good examples for healthy conversation, and they're letting people know that you you can talk about it, and it doesn't have to be a dark conversation. Um. So, Lizzie Miles, when uh, at some point people here in Connecticut who are listening right now are going to want to go to, I mean, not everybody, but some people will want to go to a death cafe uh, and uh, and have an opportunity to have tea and cake and talk to other people who aren't afraid of talking about this and, and get things off their chests maybe that they need to. Um, so is, there isn't really one in Connecticut, right? I mean, there's one in Cape Cod. I mean, do we, is there any way to know when we'll have one here? I, you can... On DeathCafe.com, um, we recommend that all hosts that are having Death Cafe events list their event uh, for other people to find. So that way you can uh, type in a zip code and see where the closest Death Cafe is. In, in my city, I've actually had some people drive three hours to come to my event, <laughs> which is um, a really long way, in my opinion. Um, so you can, you know, make the drive if you don't have one in your immediate neighborhood or, like I mentioned before, get together with some other friends and host a death cafe. Like, you know, put, all you really need is tea and cake and a soft, safe place and just put the word out and people will come. All right. Uh, so there you have it. There's your mandate if you're out there and you think there is uh, way too much denial and silence around this. Lizzie Miles, thank you so much for talking about this at a time when, as I say, President Carter and Oliver Sacks have really kind of started the conversation. The conversation also continues for me on Sundays at Riverfront Family Church. Uh, we're going to end with another uh, little snippet of my conversation yesterday. That's all church noise in the background. The service is just broken up. Uh, a little snippet from my conversation about Jimmy Carter and death uh, with the Reverend Nancy Butler. I think for me, and one reason I'm talking to you today is that you and Jimmy Carter share something else. You share a faith. And I just think that makes it a whole different conversation, right? Yeah. 
I was thinking about that um, this week, that what difference does faith make when you face death? And the image that came to me was, um, I don't know, it's like if it's great or something in gym class, you know those like rings you have to like go across the stupid gym in? And uh, I thought, some people don't have faith, they're on ring one or two, and they suddenly get lurched, you know, into like ring 10, and they weren't ready for it. But Jimmy Carter, when he was 11, he gave his life to the Lord. He immediately started teaching Sunday school in his 20s. So he grabbed the first ring of giving his life to the Lord. He grabbed the second ring of developing strong spiritual habits. And then he wanted to be the head of the Navy, and he, um, his mother asked him to go home and run the peanut farm. That was a very difficult juncture, and he thought the right thing to do is to go run the peanut farm. It looked like a dead end running a peanut farm in Plains, Georgia, for 17 years. But he did the right thing. So he grabbed ring after ring after ring after ring for 90 years. So now he's got one more ring to grab, and it's not so hard to let go. He let go of that first ring at the age of 11. So it's like, boom, you know, like he's almost there. It's an easy transition because he lived a life of faith. And I think for other people, it's like a really rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us, we get closer and closer to that, and we realize we've got nothing to fall back on. Yeah, no, you know, I, like I said, I think leaving your loved ones is hard no matter what. Um, but if you're close with God, um, you know you're not alone through that transition. Uh, the parable of the rings. That's a really good one, actually. All right, so we'll take a break. We'll come back with a completely different topic. All right, that was a conversation about death and about having conversations about death. But most of the time, you don't want to die, right? You don't want to die, particularly if you find yourself in a really terrifying situation, a terrifying situation that might involve you being in a pretty closed space with a shooter. I mean, this is still an incredibly rare event. It's probably not going to happen to anyone listening to this show right now. But it does happen. It happened on a train in France last week. Uh, We know the outcome. A group of five passengers, three of them were uh, young Americans traveling together. Two of those young Americans were service men, which may be significant, um, made a decision to try to subdue this shooter. I think the French citizen was the first person to tackle him, but then uh, these young Americans rushed forward in a way that was really dangerous, and this could have could have gone a lot worse than it did. Uh, it actually resolved itself uh, just about ideally. Um, however, it wasn't, I mean, disarming this guy wasn't all that easy. He kept pulling out other weapons. Uh, the people trying to subdue him wound up just having to hit him until they knocked him out. And certainly descriptions of the encounter make it sound as though it easily could have gone another way. I mean, they had to traverse, I think, 10 meters uh, to get to where the guy was. And just because of one thing or another, he didn't shoot them over the over that arc of space. So was it the smart play? Was it uh, something that other people should be inspired to do in certain situations like that? What's the smart thing to do if you're... And maybe not necessarily on a train, but obviously the people come to your workplace, uh, to a school, to a movie theater you're sitting in. It's happened in all kinds of venues. Uh, We thought we would talk to somebody who's given this some thought, and that would be Kenneth Gray, a coordinator of National Security Studies Program at the University of New Haven's Henry C. College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences. Uh, He's joining us from WNPR's studios in New Haven. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Colin. 
Um, so, th- you know, I, I was getting ready for this today. I did. I watched a bunch of uh, videos that have been uh, created either by law enforcement agencies or by colleges working with Homeland Security grants uh, about what to do about this. It, so is there sort of a state of the art thinking about how to be what to do in a situation where you're you're menaced in this way? Well, you have to think back to the Columbine shooting. Uh, when you look at Columbine shooting, the protocol at that time was for the police to set up a perimeter, uh, SWAT to come in, and SWAT would resolve whatever the issue was. But that doesn't work if you have very limited amount of time to be able to, to deal with the threat, that the threat is going to attack you before police can arrive or before the SWAT team can arrive. So Texas State University, after Columbine, Uh, a group there in San Marcos, put together a protocol for how police should respond to this type of event. Following that, Department of Homeland Security adopted this program and expanded it not just for police, but what individuals should do in the event that they engage an active shooter, if they encounter an active shooter. So the the protocol for, for citizens, not police, is that you should run, if at all possible, If you cannot run without encountering the shooter, you should hide to include barricading yourself in a room if if it won't lock. And if that doesn't work, at last uh, step would be the fight, the fight with all your life because you don't have any other choice. So, and, and I've seen this slightly modified into, uh, and, and the one that you're talking about is, uh, I think, in run, hide, fight. I've also seen it as avoid, deny, defend. So avoid is you know, just get out of the situation, get as far away as you can. The deny part is that part about barricading yourself in some place it'll be difficult to get to, turning off the lights in, in a room where you're hiding, maybe wedging furniture up against the door if it doesn't lock, all that kind of stuff. Deny access to you. And then that the last part is that defend. If still your life is at risk, uh, one of the videos I watched, um, uh, which was, I think, uh, prepared by um, uh, American Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Program at Texas State University, said you should consider anyway you have the right to fight for your life, right? If you if, if nothing else is working, you have the right uh, and you should maybe think about it that way. And I'm just wondering also, that's it's easy to sort of come up with formulas like this, but really there are a lot of gray areas, right? There might be situations where you have to make your own decision. You know, am I so sufficiently backed into a corner that my only option here is to fight against this person who's inevitably going to be more heavily armed and better prepared for this encounter than I am? How do people think about that? How should they think about it? Well, if you're in a bad situation like that, you have to do whatever, uh, look at what options you have available to you. The problem is, is that you don't know who else is in the area and what they're going to do. By that, I mean, you look at domestic flights here in the United States. Most domestic flights in the United States may not have an air marshal on board, but they may. And air marshals travel in an undercover capacity. You don't see a uniform there. So while you decide to attack to, to save yourself, that air marshal may be in actuality about to uh, take action himself. So you may, in, in reality, while you think you may be attacking the person because there's no other options, that option may be there. So, uh, you know, the, this doesn't come without risk. Also, in the case uh, on the train, one of the American servicemen was cut with a box cutter on several, uh, several times. And so there was also a threat to him uh, throughout that he actually... I uh, ended up uh, being attacked in the process. 
Right, and I believe one of the other, uh, in that group of five people, there were two people who were, one was a French citizen and one was, I think, a dual citizenship person. One of those two people actually did get shot, uh, and I think it was with the secondary firearm. In other words, once they got the AK-47 away from him, he pulled out a, a different a hand weapon and I believe shot one of the people trying to subdue him. So there certainly are risks uh, associated that with that. I'm also thinking, wondering, though, whether there needs to be, um, watching these videos today and reading some stuff, whether there needs to be a broad educational effort. Not that we want people walking around in fear of their lives or thinking all the time about something that's still very unlikely statistically to happen to them. But one of the things that I saw, for example, today was if you're in that deny mode where you're trying to deny access, you're trying to hide and deny access to the room you're in, turn off your cell phone. Um, You know, If your cell phone rings, that's not going to be good. It's the kind of thing maybe somebody wouldn't think about. Uh, Do you want to comment? Are there other things people should think about like that? Sure. Um, DHS training says that when you are in the uh, the hide aspect, you should barricade yourself into a room if at all possible, that you should turn the lights out, that you should uh, turn off cell phones, and that you should wait there until law enforcement comes to get you out. So you're trying to make yourself invisible to the bad guy at that time as, as best as possible. Uh, you don't want to attack unless there is absolutely no other choice left open for you. Right. And um, I also read that um, uh, although, for example, in the Mumbai shootings, um, Twitter was sort of useful in some ways for the news to get out and for people to understand kind of what was happening. But also people were apparently located by their tweets too. people who were on their phones hiding in this area were were tweeting out information about it. and, And it seems as though the shooters may have found them because of their tweets. So once again, people trying to be useful, helpful, trying to get the word out. Uh, maybe putting themselves in danger. I, I assume that's sort of true in lots of ways. Yeah, and the uh, situation in Mumbai, the uh, the attackers actually were in contact with an, uh, what turned out to be an operations center that was giving them real-time information. So they were able to watch television. They were able to watch the news feeds. They were able to watch tweets, look at websites, and constantly feed information to the attackers. So the attackers may actually be receiving information from the outside. That's very important. But if you look at the train situation here, they actually responded within the protocol. They may not have known the protocol, but their actions actually were in accordance with that protocol. How do you mean? Well, there was no place to run. There was no place to hide on the train. And so the last option was to fight. Right. And they, uh, the, I know the servicemen have said, at least one of them has said, uh, this was all about survival, all about instinct. Um, and, and so, the, so in that situation, yeah, maybe it is kind of clear. This is really what you should do. The other options really don't exist, or they certainly don't exist. Uh, they're not very good options uh, in a situation like that. But, you know, also in our lives and in our hearts, you know, I think we, we want to, in some way, tell ourselves, wow, if something's bad happening, I want to be the one running toward the situation to help, not the person running away. You think about maybe the, the bombings in Boston uh, at the marathon. You know, I want to be running in the direction of the people who need help as opposed to running away. And so, uh, so much of the, the training videos and the informational videos to say smartest thing you can do, best thing you can do is run away. And, and I guess part of that also is, you know, you said, well, you don't know who else is on the plane or whatever. There might be a marshal there. You might be getting in that person's way. You also don't know who else is involved in this attack, how coordinated it is, whether there are other bombs or whether the shooter has arranged another explosive to go off. In other words, you you may want to be running towards the situation to give people help, but you may be running into, I would assume, dangers that you're not even aware of. Correct. 
Um, so, so how do you evaluate that? I mean, do you, you, in other words, you just have to, you just have to turn and run in, in the other direction. There's, there's no other way to think about this. Well, look at nine uh, eleven on board UA ninety three. That was the flight where the passengers were able to determine that there were other aircraft that had been hijacked. Their planes had been hijacked. They reached out through their cell phones to loved ones. They found out that their plane was probably going to be used as a weapon like that, and they attempted to retake the plane. The plane ended up crashing there in Pennsylvania. But nonetheless, they were trying to attack to retake the plane. They had no other option at that time. Same thing that we're discussing here is that you, you weigh with limited amount of information, you weigh your options, and you take what you think is the best choice. We're talking to Kenneth Gray. He's a retired uh, FBI special agent, uh, retiring with 34 years of service. Uh, He's coordinator of National Security Studies Program at the University of New Haven's Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences. So um, when when it comes to training the other people, the first responders, they really they have to do the opposite thing. Right. You have to be able to train people to overcome their instincts, because my instinct in this situation is to run away. Um, how do you train first responders to overcome the flight instinct and run towards the problem? Well, uh, the the active shooter protocol is training to to have the first responders, the uh, the law enforcement that are first on the scene, give them guidelines on how they should react. They, uh, instead of waiting for, instead of setting up a perimeter, waiting for a SWAT team to go in there and negotiate or uh, handle the situation tactically, instead, the first arriving law enforcement officers have to get a critical number of uh, individuals, a minimum number to be able to effectively address the threat, and then go in and uh, ride towards the sound of gunfire. So, um... I want to just, uh, before we run out of time, ask about one other kind of a situation. And, and it's it's different. It doesn't involve so much first responders, but it's it's very real. And we know it's real because uh, about five, six weeks ago, uh, a young man who was a former intern for Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut was on a metro train, a subway train in Connecticut, he, in uh, Washington. He was accosted by somebody who wasn't a terrorist. He was pretty much a, a common robber who wound up stabbing him to death 30 times while other people in the train just crowded out towards the edges. So that's that's a human response, too, right? There's a guy with a knife. He's stabbing somebody else. Um, people get afraid, and they, they don't want to be there. I would assume, though, that this might be a little different from what we're t- we've been talking about so far, one where your intervention, I mean, as far as you know, anyway, the guy doesn't have a gun. As far as you, And it's pretty clear that if you just stand there, uh, this other young man is is going to die from you know multiple stab wounds. I mean, is there a case in that situation for jumping in? Well, I would think so. I would think that if you're physically capable— you're close enough to be able to to uh, intercede uh, that uh, it certainly is an option that is available to you. Is there anything that you would, uh, I mean, I, I suppose it would be good if you knew something about how to subdue such a person, or do you just have to sort of go with your raw instincts? I, we can't try train an entire citizenry, I suppose, to intervene in those situations. You know, in uh, those successful cases where uh, people have joined together and tried to uh, address a threat like that. It's usually by just mobbing the person. That is, a number of people just grabbing the person and wrestling them to the ground. So it it doesn't require any type of martial arts or any type of weapon or anything, but just citizens who act together in unison to take out a threat like that. You know, at one point, that was the way that law enforcement was done uh, around the world, that before police departments were formed, 
uh, it was the hue and cry that people would uh, be called upon to reach out and grab bad guys and hold them and bring them accountable before the law. So we're kind of doing the hue and cry response. All right. Well, Kenneth Gray, thank you so much. Coordinator of National Security Studies Program at the University of New Haven's Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Scientist and a retired FBI special agent. So um, first of all, let me just say that we're going to a different segment here. And, you know, I mean, notwithstanding what Lizzie said, it is somewhat a set of grim topics here. So we're going to turn to the world of science fiction. You think you would get some escape there in the world of science fiction, but actually we're going to be talking about a somewhat heated and unpleasant controversy in which one group decided it would hijack the most famous science fiction awards uh, and and divert them to uh, another set of recipients. And a, kind of a battle took place in the very quiet halls of the Internet. We'll tell you how that came out uh, on, at Saturday night's Hugo Award Ceremonies in Spokane, Washington, after this. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. And for show pages, articles, photos, and videos, visit our website, WNPR.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show are performers like Janelle Monet ushering in a new era of protest music. And now, back to Colin. We're going to change topics here a little bit. We're going to talk about science fiction. The Hugo Awards are effectively the Oscars, the Emmys, the Pulitzers, whatever you want them to be, of the world of science fiction. They are ordinarily paid attention to mainly by science fiction fans. There's reason for more people to pay attention this time because we've seen a phenomenon here where, in fact, a group of people tried to game these awards, try to get a different outcome from what ordinarily happens. And it's a confusing story. It's one that I've had trouble understanding. Uh, but if anybody can explain it to me. It's many-time Jeopardy! champion Arthur Chu, uh, also a freelance writer and columnist, who's been following this since uh, since it began, I think since it started up earlier this year. The Hugo Awards were last night. They had a rather unusual set of outcomes. But Arthur uh, Chu, welcome back to our show. Thank you. Tell us, who was trying to game the Hugos and for what purpose? Um, there was a small group of people who, um, you see this in a lot of different communities, but it was a small group of people who feel like science fiction has taken the wrong turn, that they have this conservative slash reactionary point of view. They believe that science fiction has become too politically correct, too left wing. And when we say yeah. that, so in other words, it, what's happened is that it used to be pretty much a province of white male authors. I grew up reading science fiction. You know, I mean, there was sort of Ursula Le Guin and then nobody else. And this is now expanded to include writers who are women, gays, lesbians, people of color, right? The, the, the landscape of authors has changed. Is that what they're objecting to? 
that's partly that, although they won't admit that. And when they came up with their slate of authors to promote, they made sure to sprinkle in a few women and people of color on the slate to try to be a cloak against that. But it is. It's, a, it's about identity politics, and it's also about this idea that if we put identity politics into the story, if the stories aren't just like, you know, rip-roaring tales of explosions and space princesses and fighting aliens, that they're, they're opposed to what they see as, you know, a more literary bent in science fiction. Too much moral ambiguity, too much discussion of things like race and class and gender, and that, that makes it not fun which is a really reductive and I think false view of saying that they're the only ones who know, you know, how to write fun stories and all the people they dislike aren't fun, which I think is false. But that's sort of the story that they're telling themselves. Is there another, I mean, for example, I, virgin that I am of, about modern science fiction, even I know that there are subgenres with names like cli-fi, you know, that really sort of right. try to look at, look at climate change and, and how it plays out across the science fiction landscape. Is that another aspect of this, something that, that maybe this group of quote-unquote reactionaries would object to? Yeah, um, definitely. There's a lot of people who say, like, science fiction shouldn't push a quote-unquote political agenda. And so talking about environmental issues um, in science fiction, they, they see as, you know, making it preachy or making it not fun. But it's, it's very much from this right-wing blinkered perspective. It's, it's, it's false to say that science fiction used to be apolitical. Science fiction has always been very political. A lot of the so-called grandmasters of science fiction that these people idolize were extremely political just from a perspective they happen to agree with. You know, but science fiction has always addressed fears of nuclear war has addressed ideas of, you know, how government could be improved in the future. Robert Heinlein, you know, half his books are, you know, libertarian screeds about the evils of bureaucracy and big government. This is not new. It's just that people are beginning to object because the messages are, no, are ones that they now find threatening. So uh, there was sort of, I guess, kind of a two-pronged movement, uh, one faction calling itself the sad puppies and the other calling them the rabid puppies. But their goal, I guess, was kind of the same, right, which is it, it turns out that it was anyway up until now easier for a small group of people to manipulate the, the actual nominations for the Hugo Awards, easier than it would be for any of the other awards I just mentioned, right? Yeah. So the thing is the Hugo Awards are a popular vote award system. So it's not a selected jury of professional judges. Anyone can vote, but the group of voters is small because you have to pay $40 to the World Science Fiction Convention, which is technically the organization that gives the Hugos. You have to pay an entry fee to vote. So usually it's a small group of people who really care, as opposed to, you know, an internet poll of like millions of people. And, and it's, that's intentional because they don't want it to just be the bestseller every year. They want it to be people who uh, have a strong interest in the genre and who are, you know, a little more informed than the average consumer. But that means that it's a small group and you can swamp it pretty easily. I compare it to like primary elections in, you know, real elections. The primaries are much easier to manipulate than the general election. Most people historically have nominated whoever they felt like nominating. And so there would be broad trends you know, there'd be an author saying, oh, I'm up for a Hugo, please nominate me, right? But as long as everybody was kind of uncoordinated, you wouldn't see the same group dominate over and over again. This is a funny thing. The people who call themselves the sad puppies argue that the Hugos have always been rigged by, like, this small group. But if that were true, they wouldn't have been successful at what they did, because what they did was really, for the first time, organize a group of people to all nominate the exact same slate of works together, and by doing that, they swamped 
you know, with a very small number of actual voters because they were all coordinated. They swamped all the other nominations. And the funny thing is they say they're arguing for populist fun science fiction. And yet the sad puppies, they, they named themselves after a blog post saying, you know, these puppies are sad that they're being excluded. They, they really said they were sort of ironically saying, oh, we're just representing poor put upon authors who have been like blacklisted from the Hugos. So they tried to make their slate look like a real slate. But the so-called rabid puppies, that was Vox Day, who's the, one of the, the worst, you know, the, a hardcore racist, sexist, xenophobic troll, you know, among these science fiction writers. And he spends a lot more time with his political trolling than his science fiction writing. But he called his slate the rabid puppies because he took the sad puppy slate and then just made it much more obviously partisan and just put himself in there, his publishing house, Castalia House, which is a very small outfit that sells only ebooks based in Finland. But they had like a majority of the nominees on his slate, putting in his one of his writers, John C. Wright, who is a fairly obscure writer, but like nominated three times for one category, nominated five times overall. So like a record number of Hugo nominations for this one guy. And his stated goal was just to like destroy the Hugo Awards was like it was, you know, a troll move to like have just to like turn the Hugo Awards into an award nominating him sort of proving, oh, I have more rabid, you know, mindless blog followers than you do. I deserve to win these awards. So at one point, anyway, looking at all that, and I read a piece that you did in Salon about this, uh, Arthur, too, uh, it was, uh, it fed it pretty well into a kind of a declinist view of the participatory side of the in, the Internet, just in the same sense, as you said, nobody in their right mind reads the comment sections anymore. Nobody trusts some of these easily uh, gameable processes. It seemed as though that same thing, well, it, it definitely had happened with the nominating process of the Hugo Awards. On the other hand, the next step was a different kind of popular movement, right? A lot of people forking up $40 uh, so that they would be allowed to vote for the 2015 Hugos so that 65% more people than had ever voted before voted for the Hugos this year. So a different outcome, maybe it's important to explain, what did happen? So the awards came out Saturday night, and in a general way, what happened? The puppies lost in every category where there was someone who wasn't on their slate. So usually a category would have, like, a category has five nominees for the final vote, and the puppies for all the popular categories are able to put in like three or four of their people, or in some cases, all five of them were their people. And in every case where there was a non-puppy nominee, they won. In every case where it was all puppy-nominated works in a category, the category got voted no award, which is an option that in the final voting that you can vote no award if you think none of the uh, nominees are deserving. So up till now, there had been five times in Hugo history when no award won a category. Last night, that doubled. Five categories got no award. So now you have this irony where the people behind the Sad Puppies movement are now saying, this was a conspiracy, this was gaming the system, this was trying to shut us out, when really it's the opposite of a conspiracy. It was very public. Um, there were many people publicly in the media highlighting what had happened to the awards and telling people, you know, if you want to preserve the integrity of the awards, you should vote no award on those categories to show, like, we reject this kind of gaming the system. And most of these people were first-time Hugo voters, people who had never voted before, who signed up because they heard about this in the media. 
And it really puts the lie to the idea that there's a small cabal that's keeping these people out. It's actually apparently the majority of fandom that disapproves of what these people are doing. And, you know, I'm now hearing this ridiculous stuff where they are accusing their enemies of doing exactly what they did, saying, oh, well, they manipulated the voting system because our vote was split among our candidates and no award, you know, just edged us out that way. When in reality, for a lot of these categories, no award was the outright majority of votes that it outnumbered all of the other votes combined. So there's this resounding rejection of the puppies by fandom. If you read the paranoid style of American politics, right, this is the thing. They say that both of their opponents are terrifyingly powerful and yet pathetic and weak. So this started because they said, we represent real science fiction fandom. We represent the majority of people who read these books, and we're trying to fight this tiny cabal that's controlling the Hugo Awards. Now they're saying we're an oppressed minority, right? <laughs> we're being bullied by these people, you know, and that they're holding both positions simultaneously, you know, which is which is funny, but sad. Well, one of the uh, people who used almost the almost exactly the same words that you used, Arthur Chu, was none other than George R. R. Martin, who talked about this movement uh, as a, a group of uh, fans, quote, gathering to defend the integrity of the Hugos. And it kind of worked. I mean, it didn't really work in the sense that the right people got the awards. I mean, you kind of had to destroy the village to save it, right? They're just a lot of people got a lot of awards had no award winner, which is that's not the ideal thing. The ideal situation is that the Hugo Awards go to somebody who really, really deserves it or who the fans feel really deserves it. But I'm thinking I'm wanting to know now in a more general way, Arthur Chu, back in April, this struck you as very much part of your overall declinist view of, of what can and usually or frequently anyway does happen on the Internet, which is that people, malicious people, small groups of malicious people can uh, control a situation, can manipulate a situation for their own ends in a way that deprives other people of basic kinds of happiness or, or even the enjoyable use of the Internet. On the other hand, you look at this and it does feel as though if those are the forces of darkness, that the forces of light gathered up and, and, and made their own voices heard. I don't know. Do you see this any differently given Saturday night's outcome? The sad puppies are right when they say that they already won in a sense, because when they gained the nomination process, they shut out a lot of a lot of deserving candidates from being nominated at all, giving no award to a category, you know, being unable to give a Hugo award to who you feel, you know, legitimately should get that award. That means that they've already won certain victories. So this was this was just the us, you know, confirming I think what we already knew that they were lying when they said they represented the majority of fans, confirming the fact that the Hugos were screwed up by a small group of trolls this year, you know, and the very unlikely event that they had actually won the outright vote that would have shown that something was really screwed up about the process. But I think the question is, what's going to happen next? Next year, is this sustainable? Because what people have said is that the Hugos have only worked in the past because there's a sort of informal gentleman's agreement that we're all going to vote our conscience on the nominations, and the nominations will be legitimately on who really did think that these works were the most deserving this year, and then we'll vote on a runoff of the finalists from the nominations. But now that we've had the possibility of, you know, block voting to gain the nominations, everyone's going to know this is going to happen next year, that it's a possibility next year, and so there's going to be a counter slate and it's going to turn into, this is exactly how political parties develop in real life. The founding fathers didn't want political parties. They wanted everyone to vote their conscience for who should be up for president. But 
anyone who organizes those votes gets a lot more power in the voting process. And so almost immediately you had two parties, right? We're going to see a slate of candidates who are not the puppies, right, to make sure the puppies don't gain the nominations. And it's going to turn into, this is the really ironic thing, it's going to turn into what they said they were opposing but didn't exist. They've created a cabal. By necessity, there's going to be people who get together in private and say, these are the people who should be up for Hugo's next year and advertise that slate because mm-hmm. to keep them from doing it. It hadn't happened before, which is why they were able to do it. It sounds now like they've created what they see, they, they seek to oppose. You so, know? Yeah. So it does sound like for a furthering of your declinist view of this, right? That it's sort of an animal farm thing. <laughs> I mean, well, it's the, it's the problem with democracy is that, you know, that democracy doesn't work, right? Well, I mean, like in our real life political democracy, we don't collectively look around the United States and decide which person out of all 300 million of us should be president, right? There's a process, and that process is not very democratic because in or- most people don't have the time or energy to invest in politics. So instead, political professionals, we go through this process of like, you know, vetting candidates, sorting through candidates, having candidates go through primaries, having candidates gather endorsements. And then when it's all said and done, two people who've been through this very bureaucratic elitist process, you know, then we let the rest of America just vote, which one of these two people, right? And that's not very democratic, but it's the best we can do because, you know, of this fundamental problem with democracy, where if you had just asked everybody to pick a random person to be president, we wouldn't know where to start, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this filtering process that's inherently elitist. And that's what happens with all these attempts to engineer democracy on the internet, right? Is that if you have no filtering process, then the most dedicated people who tend to be the most deranged people can game the system. <laughs> In order to stop them from, from gaming the system, you have to create this elitist filtering process that undermines it being democratic. But you see this happen over and over again. Uh, Arthur Chu, uh, well, on that exhilarating note, that the deranged people uh, seem to be steering the ship more than the non-deranged people, uh, we'll pause, we'll let you go. We have to say goodbye for today. Thank you very much, Arthur Chu, for joining right, us. Thank you. also want to thank everybody else who helped out today. Another exciting scramble. We'll be back tomorrow with, we think anyway, a, so- a show about protest music. Join us for whatever it is. Democracy is coming.